I grew up going to the river with my dad. It was our weekend thing. Pack up Friday night, did an early start Saturday morning, spend all day fishing and just hanging out on the river. Whatever we caught, we'd have for Sunday supper. When I joined the army, those fishing trips stopped, except for the times I went home on leave. My dad was the traditional kind of outdoorsman. He liked teaching me all the old stories he had heard from his father and grandfather. It wasn't just how to fish. It was how to get along with the water and the land. I just never realized how important all these old stories were going to be. Until a lot later. It had been a few years since dad was able to go fishing with me. But I kept up the tradition. Going out on the boat, feeling the water, fighting the oars as I rowed. Because boat motors would scare the fish away. To my favorite fishing spot, feeling how life just slowed down when I was out there. Even if dad wasn't always with me on these trips, I still liked them. I remember how cool the morning was that morning. The weather wasn't a shocker. It was early fall, not quite the end of fishing season where I live, and the fishing was still good. You just needed to know where the good spots were. Thanks to dad, I did. So I put out my rowboat and I headed for some of our favorite places. The thing about doing things the old fashioned way is that you can enjoy the experience more. The sounds of my paddling barely seemed to disturb the early morning mist that was still on the water. I didn't see anyone else taking advantage of the fishing, which surprised me a little. Our area had good hunting and a fishing culture going, and I was used to seeing other people on the river. But then I realized it was the start of hunting season two, and I thought maybe people would be a little more involved with that. I pulled out my spare baseball hat, the one that I use if I'm in the woods during hunting season. Fluorescent orange isn't what you would call a flattering color, but it's what you want to wear if you don't want to be mistaken for a deer or a rabbit. I had plenty of practice getting shot at while I was in the army. I had no intention of catching a bullet after I'd retired. My dad's favorite fishing spot was a ways down the river, around the middle of a bend. It was always a great spot for largemouth bass, but lately we'd been catching catfish there too. That's a problem because catfish are invasive and once they get big enough, they'll literally eat anything they can catch. My dad had a few stories told by his father of dogs and even children who had been snagged by the river's edge by a big catfish. I'd personally never seen one that big, but I'd seen plenty of videos on YouTube of people who had and I never wanted to be on the receiving end of a monster catfish, at least not without my platoon in some serious firepower. The sun was all the way up by the time I made it to dad's second favorite fishing spot. I was hoping for some decent fishing and I was prepared to spend at least half the day getting him a good catch. He loved his fish suppers on the weekend. Mom swore it was one of the things that kept him young. I baited my line and dropped it over and waited and waited. Honestly, I waited a lot more than I was used to waiting before I ever got a bite. I know that sometimes even the perfect fishing spot comes up empty, but this felt a bit unusual. Maybe it was the weather, or maybe someone else had fished there recently. I don't know. All I know is that I only caught a couple of small fish, nothing really worth keeping. On any other weekend, I might have just taken my lousy catch and lived with it. But dad hadn't been feeling all that great, and I wanted to bring him a good, fresh fish and tell him about my day on the river. So I decided to switch spots. I wasn't sure which of dad's fishing spots I should pick though. 
If his best was coming up short, there's no guarantee that any of the others would work out any better. I'd just have to try something different. I started rowing up the river, around the bend that my dad and I had never gone to before. Maybe it was the fall weather, but it seemed to me that the trees and the scrub on the left side of the river were more, I don't know, more barren? Probably because they were taking the brunt of the wind. I kept my eye on the bank as I rode. Something about it was nagging at me. Some of my dad's old stories came to mind. His father and his father's father had told him that they'd always have good luck fishing if they followed the rules of the river. I'm not sure how old the saying was, but my great-grandfather had talked about being wise to the spirits. They had their own section of the river that we should stay out of there, but in great need, we had to give our first catch to the spirits so they know we respected them. It was a funny, archaic advice from an archaic time. And while I was all for conservation and respecting nature, my fishing luck had been garbage today. And if I finally did manage to catch anything worth keeping, I certainly wasn't planning on dumping it back into the river. I had to admit that the further I got around the river, the cooler the sunlight seemed to be, or the air seemed thicker. It was certainly quieter. I didn't even hear the usual fall insects buzzing around the surface of the water. And maybe it was my imagination, but it almost felt too still, like a storm was about to hit. I'd been a lover of the outdoors for a long time, but I'd never heard a storm hitting at this location at this time of year, so I decided to stick it out. I figured the lack of insects was going to be a good thing, that the fish were going to be hungry. I baited my line with a bit of leftover ham, always a winner when it came to catching anything worth cooking, and tossed it over, and then I waited. It was so quiet that I could hear the slash of the water against the hull of the boat. It was rhythmic and almost soothing. I kind of drifted off into that haze that comes whenever you're fishing alone. It wasn't the same as when I fished the upper part of the river. That had been a comfortable haze. This felt more like I was drunk, maybe drugged. I wasn't really paying attention to much. That's the biggest mistake you can make while you're fishing alone, forgetting that you're alone that there's nobody there to keep an eye on where the boat is drifting. My eyelids felt heavier and heavier, like I just wanted to close them and sleep, and it was hard to fight that off. But I knew I couldn't sleep, not now, not on an open boat on the river. Just then, there was a tug on my line, and that was enough to wake me up all the way. Whatever was on the hook, it wasn't a throwaway fish, and the way it fought me as I tried to reel it in made me wonder if it wasn't one of those big catfish. I could feel my adrenaline kick in as I fought to land my catch. It took a lot longer than I wanted it to, but I finally saw the ugly face of a catfish breach the surface of the roiled water when I felt something connect, hard, with the other side of the boat. The rowboat, not the most stable platform on a good day, flipped enough that I lost my balance and went head first into the water. The shock of the water made my breath punch right out of my chest. I've done my share of slogging through icy water before, but I was wearing fatigues and carrying 50 pounds of gear, and this was harder than that. I wasn't wearing anything other than civilian clothes, but they were incredibly heavy. No, not heavy. I felt things grabbing onto my legs, the back of my shirt. I actually felt thin fingers twist into my shirt just as I got pulled under the water. 
My training kicked in as the river closed in over my face. I wasn't sure how deep the river was, but I knew I needed to get to the bottom so I could push off. I let myself get dragged down until I felt something solid under my feet, then pushed hard. Whatever I was tangled with got pulled up with me, but I was able to get my head above water again. I flailed in the direction of the rowboat and managed to get my hand on the side. The weight on me intensified, and I got pulled under again, but I refused to let go of the boat. It rocked too much to pull myself up with, and I felt something heavy and cold and slimy slap into my fingers. I fought my way up to the surface for air and only managed to tip the boat enough for the wriggling catfish I caught to fall out and back into the water. It slapped me in the face with its tail as it escaped into the river. But as soon as the fish hit the water, whatever was holding on to me just let go. As soon as they did, I swam back for the boat and struggled to get back into it. The oars had stayed in the oarlocks, and I'm not ashamed to say, I rode for safety of the other part of the river. As I rode, I got a good look at what I was leaving behind. There were things on the bank of the river, five of them. I don't know what they were. They were skinny and naked, and the only thing more terrifying than the way they were tearing into that big catfish was the face I saw when one of them looked up and watched me go. No nose, huge glassy black eyes, and a gaping mouth stuffed with a pale chunk of fish. Nothing I'd seen in Afghanistan terrified me as much as these things did. I rode faster. I didn't want to be anywhere near that part of the river ever again. Once I got home and changed, I almost started to convince myself that I'd dreamed the whole thing, except there were finger-shaped holes in the back of my shirt. I don't know what I saw that day, but I'm also never going back to that section of the river with or without company. And if I ever fish that river again, I am going to make very sure I give my first catch back to the river. I don't know that I'd be lucky enough to get away a second time. Something has been following me for 13 years, from 18 to 31. It's still following me. It's only a matter of time before I see it again. I'm not crazy, you know? I'm at least not the type of crazy that thinks this all sounds normal. I know it's weird, and I've tried to dismiss it. I've tried to say that it was a result of some childhood trauma, some memory I couldn't escape. I've tried to say it was a lack of sleep, or even a dream I couldn't wake up from. I wanted it to be a hallucination. I wanted it to be something I could treat with a change in routine or with the proper diagnosis. At least then I'd have a chance. A chance for what? I'm not sure. Why waste my time running from the inevitable? The first time I saw it was the worst, not because of the sighting itself, but because of what happened next. It was because I learned immediately that this thing was real. I was alone at first. I was sulking. It's easy to sulk at 18, isn't it? I moved from slouching in my chair by my TV and PlayStation to sprawling across my bed, expecting some form of entertainment to come to me. Hearing that, I'm sure you can understand why I wanted to dismiss this encounter as some image brought on by my depressed mental state. Then the room got cold. It was so cold so suddenly that I could see the breath in front of my face. I sat upright on the bed. Directly across from me 
was the only window in my room. It was a small, rectangular slab of glass, more like a vent than anything. I always figured that was the window I was stuck with because my room, up on the second floor, was never meant to be occupied. Maybe it was for storage. Maybe it was a workshop of some kind. Maybe it was just an afterthought. That night, there was a man looking into my window. His face was pale and his skin was taut, as if it stretched across his skull like a mask. There was a smile on his face so wide, I could see his gums and his cheeks. His eyes were large and surrounded by dark circles. There was a wide-brimmed hat on his head. Wiry, straw-like hair poked out from the sides of his head. The sight of this man was enough to make me freeze, to stand there and look in my window. He would have needed to be well over 12 feet tall. He didn't speak or move. He stared, and I stared back. What else could I do? Minutes passed, I think. It certainly felt like minutes, but time always seems to pass a little slower when you're scared. After those minutes, seconds, whatever, he did finally take a step back. He took a step back and faded out of my view. He returned into the darkness of the outside world. I wasn't sticking around to see if he had planned on coming back. Going outside may have been a stupid move, but I wasn't staying in that room any longer. I ran to my friend's house. We didn't even talk about the incident at first. I distracted myself with some food and video games. Eventually though, I had to talk. I sat down on his couch and said that I needed to tell him something. He laughed nervously and asked if he could go first. I was too caught up in my own disbelief to notice that he had been acting strangely too. He told me earlier in the day at his girlfriend's house, he saw someone watching him. As he described the white face and the same wide smile, I felt the color drain from my skin. He didn't have to ask. He knew right away that I'd seen the same man. We didn't talk about it anymore after that. If anything, we tried to forget. You know what they say about roaches. If you've seen one, it's already too late. You're infested. The one you find on your counter is nothing compared to the dozens running underneath your floorboards and hiding in your cabinets. That's probably true of any infestation, don't you think? Bed bugs, fleas, by the time you see them, you've already lost. Your home is theirs now. And without immediate professional help, you will be theirs too. So what if more than a home gets infested? That's the question that's been haunting me. What if a city, or a state, or even an entire country? Who are the professionals then? I can't stop asking those questions. I need answers. I've seen one, after all. And if I've seen one, there have to be others. I was in Carlsbad Caverns, New Mexico. I was enjoying the occasional hike, and I still find the American Southwest to be beautiful. I don't think I'd go back out there alone, but the scenery is still gorgeous. I was outside of the caverns themselves. This was on the backcountry trail before it flooded. I'm sure that flood is the only reason more people haven't seen them. The creatures. It was midday, maybe a little after 1 p.m. I stopped to take a few pictures of the flora. When a sound further up the trail grabbed my attention, 
It was a snap. It wasn't the sound of a breaking bone or a snapping branch. It wasn't that ominous, you know. It was just odd. It was like someone had cracked open a crab leg at the buffet table. I looked, saw nothing. There was a short ridge a little further up. I figured an animal had passed underneath it, just out of my sight. Then there was another snap. This one was punctuated by a wet squelching sound. I could easily visualize the man at the table, sweat on his brow and bib on his neck, stuffing his face full of steamed meat, chewing open and loud. But I didn't want to visualize. I didn't want to imagine. I crept closer to that ridge. It must have heard me coming, too. My boots on the sand must have sounded like a jackhammer to this thing. It was already looking up when I found it. It was looking right back at me. Its body was humanoid, gaunt, and naked. The thinnest man you've ever saw. His limbs were long, long enough to make your skin crawl. His face and skin were smooth. It looked hard and reflected the sunlight as if his body was covered in some sort of translucent shell, an exoskeleton or carapace. I don't know the word. I do know that the creature wasn't happy to see me. Its lips folded back almost mechanically, peeling one centimeter at a time. There were no teeth in its mouth. It looked like rows of pointed, hairy fingers, like a spider's jaw. Its eyes were so wide set and large, it didn't have a nose. I don't think. No ears, no nose. It was rolling a piece of meat between its mouth fingers. I'd interrupt the thing in the middle of its meal. If I wasn't in trouble for stalking it, I certainly was for that. It lunged. It leaped the height of an eight-foot ridge with ease, swiping at my head with one of its long arms. I must have pulled back just in time. I turned around and ran. I was miles away from the nearest human being. I was even further away from my car. But what choice did I have? I kept running. I kept running even when I heard the wings, the electric flutter of beetles' wings, buzzing, like the drone of an airplane. I didn't want to look back. I didn't want to see. I could feel death behind me, and I wasn't brave enough to face it. Maybe if I had, I could describe the creature a little better. Maybe I'd know what it looked like in flight. Maybe I'd know how it disappeared. I tripped crashed and rolled onto my back. I brought up my forearms to shield my face from the claws I was certain were coming. I think I screamed, but death didn't come. For a reason I couldn't grasp then. The insect monster had retreated. It had spared me. I cried, and I crawled back into my vehicle. I tried to report the encounter. You can imagine how that went. Even when their eyes went wide with terror, they refused to believe me. I wonder if they'd heard a story like that before. A few weeks later, though, I did hear something interesting. A mother cougar was shot less than a mile from the place I had fallen on the trail. She had given birth nearby and was treating the area as her own. She was scaring tourists, even chased after one unlucky hiker. I wonder if I stumbled into her territory while I was running. I wonder if the creature chasing me knew that, if it knew he'd passed the threshold from his home and into hers. Is that why it turned around? In some bizarre way, had the cougar saved me? I like to think so. It makes sense to me, but it's also another reason for me to worry.
If the presence of these natural predators is the only thing keeping the infestation at bay, what happens when those predators are gone? What happens to the mother lion when it is no longer there to protect her territory? Does the infestation creep closer and begin to sink into our worlds? I think what I saw that day was the first roach on the counter. It was the first sign of the things lurking underneath the floorboards of this world. And where there's one, there's many. I wish we could be prepared. I wish there was a trap we could set or an expert we could call. There's no exterminator for a job this big. Sooner rather than later, it's going to be us and the insects. They'll own our home. And then, well, you were listening, weren't you?